This is the Fixplasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Okay, welcome listeners to uh, what I hope is an interesting interview with Todd Foley, who I should say welcome back, Todd, because uh, you very kindly joined us for the Annihilation. In fact, you proposed that book. I did. What I'd like to do is is, uh, frame this conversation, put it in context with several episodes I want to do, which is to do with the broad genre of cyberpunk and also near future stories post-cyberpunk. And and I've got a a range of books that I will be talking about in the future. And the main reason I wanted to talk to you was uh, you have been running your Fractopian project for a little while. You've got at least one is it now two anthologies that you have out? There are now two books out, yeah. Fantastic. And, and you've also got a, a, a Fractopian podcast with a few episodes out there, which I've very much enjoyed. I think the first thing I'd like to do is, can you tell me, in your own words, what Fractopia is? Uh, Fractopia is a word that I coined um, to deal with what I consider to be sort of a more realistic set of questions. Um Dealing with the next three, four, five generations down the road, say a hundred years down the road, looking at the possible future, which is more difficult than ever to predict, largely due to the well, philosophically, we've we've got the postmodern end of history going on. So, on a philosophical and epistemological level, we find ourselves in difficult waters to navigate, um, and and but also because. And that's something that I can't address, you know, in any practical way. But something that we can look at in a practical way is the confluence, the coming confluence of new technologies, mostly digital technologies, which will each taken alone be revolutionary. I'm talking augmented reality, uh, virtual reality, uh, artificial intelligence. These are probably the three big ones, but we can go on because... Cloud computing, fog computing, edge computing, distributed computing, uh, the idea of the ubiquitous network to the point where, and we're already starting to enter that age where rather than uh, uh, rather than the computer being a thing that's located in a place and the humans have to go to that place, now the, the machine is bigger than us and we move around inside of it all the time. Uh, and that's the world of ubiquitous computing. So AR, VR, AI... Uh, you see all of these things, each and uh, you're taken alone, represents a, something revolutionary that will absolutely change the way that society functions and, and what it means to be a, a modern or postmodern human. But the confluence of these things, the interaction of these things, makes it even more difficult to predict the future. And these are the kinds of questions I was asking myself about two years ago when thinking about the world that day trippers my role-playing game, Day Trippers, would take place in. Now, if you're familiar with Day Trippers, you know that it's a it's a surrealist, it's a surrealist sci-fi game, and it has its tongue firmly implanted in its cheek. It is uh, uh, somewhere between, you know, the, it can it, just like any good Gonzo. I think a good Day Trippers campaign veers between hysterical and uh, uh, existentially terrifying. I've I've viewed Day Trippers as uh, the the great thing it does is of course is it, it, it has this um, 
a mechanism to travel to alternative worlds and have adventures there and the range of you different worlds you've got. I think you've got alternative Earths, you've got past and future, and you've got uh, three-dimensional space and, and various other things, and the universal care, I think, as well. Yeah. The one thing that's, uh, I think, fundamental to it is the reasons for people making the trip. Because you can you can call another world or another dungeon anything you like, and it will present a set of hazards and a series of object- objectives. But what matters is you know, the sense of why we're actually doing this and what reward we're getting. Oh, and it's a wide open game too. It takes a very, um, I'm an, I'm an anarchist and, uh, it, it takes a very anarchist approach to, I, I would say the, the, the game on the market that covers the closest ground, the, the most overlap in terms of, uh, setting and, and, uh, general conceits, um, is uh it's monty cook's oh wow, i'm slipping on the name right now you know what i'm talking about numenera yeah yeah and that, um, that makes sense the uh the systems have some mechanical similarity and uh actually monty cook and i have some interesting overlaps that go back historically for instance we both wrote for iron crown way back in the 90s uh-huh uh late 80s early 90s so, uh, and and actually, I, I like his work a lot. I think that the system that he came up with, Numenera, happens to have a lot of the same mechanical goals as the system I put forward in Day Trippers. The difference being, uh, actually, both in form and function, now that I think about it, uh, his approach is more, uh, as you might expect from a bigger publisher, uh, more broadly categorized organized, mechanical, methodical, and taxonomical. Yes. Uh, where, whereas mine is definitely more freeform, tag-based, and uh, spurious. <laughs> the thing about uh, Numenera is, of course, it, it, has, it lends itself very, very well to having big, beautiful art and evocative pictures and everything. You know, it's not, it's not just Numenera. There's another game, and I'm completely blanking on the name. I hope you can fill me in, or maybe someone in the comments can can answer this for me because the game I'm speaking about in particular involves um, basically day tripping, right? Tripping from one reality to another. Um, But the problem is that the things from the other realities often come into this one and the characters, the PCs are (coughs) a team, a secret squad force underground three letter acronym. That, that could, that could be, that could be a number of things. I I don't say I, I've not read any of Charles Strauss's The Laundry and and that sounds like uh, some of it. Well, this is, this is a very particular game. It's got a title that I'm blanking on, but it's a Monty Cook game and you guys are agents of a secret organization who can travel between dimensions and multiple worlds. And so the, and the difference that I'm trying to point out here is that uh, what what Cook does in his game, his title I can't recall, uh, is he places the PCs within a firm hierarchical structure. There's there's an existing ontology in the world that says why you are the kind of person who is what the PCs are. You're yes. an agent of a, an, an entity which has particular goals. That's something that I sidestepped completely in Day Trippers. In Day Trippers, what happens is there's this weird open source genius who discovers and releases this technology to the world. And there's nothing that any government or corporation can do to keep the bottle on that. And so we've got everything from, you know, massively funded governmental organizations, three-letter acronym organizations, creating their own teams to do military, paramilitary, espionage, and discovery 
and exploitation out in space. But we've also got your your you know garage tinkerer using the plans he downloaded off the net to build his own day tripping vehicle, his own slip ship, uh, and him and his ragtag crew of weirdos traveling between dimensions. All of this is going on at once. So it completely uh, it, it takes a completely anarchistic look at. Uh, blowing open all of the gates from the get-go. So you can be yeah. any kind of weird character you want to be. And so because of that, um, the plot lines can be much more open, right? I don't, nothing, it, nothing has to be a quote-unquote mission. You don't have to be a quote-unquote agent of anything. So the stories can be a lot weirder. And, and the intent there, like a lot of modern narrativist games, uh, because I think that Day Trippers falls it tries very hard to be a hybrid of what you would consider a traditional and narrativist. And it does this mechanically by tossing narrative control back and forth between the players and the GM periodically. And because of that, uh, I, I want slash need to keep the realm of possibility as, as open as possible. So from, from the very beginning, I decided, you know, this is not, I don't want to stick you in a role as a player. I want you to tell me, why you're journeying to other worlds. Cool. I'm, I, one of the things I mentioned in uh, in my um, uh, second Imagica episode was Portal Fantasy, and that's why I, I name-checked Day Trippers, amongst other things. Um, partly, that, that was really to talk about how the different worlds are uh, produced and what the different levers you can pull are, but also to talk about the motivations for people for traveling to other worlds. I'm just looking at Monty Cook's uh, wiki page, and um, there's a number of things called, um, I don't don't think it's Dark Space. And of course, he had a lot to do with Planescape, for the, which was uh, you know, AD&D second edition stuff. It's not, although I will say that Planescape was uh, one of the many influences on Daytrippers, for sure. The interesting thing about Planescape is, you know, I've never played it. Um, and, um, I played Portal Rats recently with, uh, the, the authors and, and a couple of other people. And that was pretty good. But one of the things that I was, I, I was hard pressed to actually get into it is because I have no grounding it in the planescape idea when it's supposed to be a, a black hat planescape mashup. I, I never played it myself, but I read, you know, I read everything. I'm one of those people who has the massive PDF library of, you know, hundreds, literally, of games that I will never run. But I've read most of them, at, oh, yeah. least, at, at least cursorily. Uh, what I lifted from Planescape was, in general, the idea of a mappable multidimensional network with, uh, with Earth three-dimensional space at the center of it, from which you could reliably uh, transmit coordinates to a particular destination or location. But again, in, you know, in typical anarchist fashion, uh, Day Trippers blows that, that nice mappable. I mean, the, the, the planes of Planescape can be measured and mapped in a way that the multiple worlds of Day Trippers can't because Day Trippers is just too multidimensional to really fit inside a particular coordinate system. So instead, we just sort of wave our hands at it, and we it has an open-ended coordinate system. So in theory, there's a multidimensional model in a quantum computer somewhere called the map, and those are all the known dimensions, pocket universes, alternate Earths, branching timelines, etc., held together, um, you know, put together piece by piece as more and more data comes in. But, you know, of course, the multiverse ultimately is 
unmappable. I didn't want to limit people, right? I didn't want to say you're going to the plane of this to the degree of that. One of the games that I'm I'm a big fan of is Everway and Jonathan Tweets of mid nineties, which was revolutionary and also not particularly commercially smart um, because of the way <laughs> that they presented it. To be honest, yeah, I've I've gone into I've, I've talked about this a couple of times, but what I mean, you can sell. Magic the Gathering style boosters to players where you know everybody's a customer, but trying to sell random boosters to the GM, that doesn't sound particularly smart to me. Uh, and otherwise it's a, it's a beautiful game. It, it's a weird one. I mean, as a publisher, it, that's a, that's a question that I actually ask myself probably with every product, you know, how to organize. The problem is that the market of players is, of course, larger than the market of GMs. But the market of GMs has the uh, almost the obligation to purchase the upgrade, spring for the booster, buy the supplemental material that the players don't really have an obligation. To. Yeah, I mean, we talk, we, we talk about um, uh, about uh, player agency and them taking control of the game, but it's still uh, we do have a big disparity of who actually owns the games that's true and, and and i guess the way that that's solved is is you have a small collection of people who play together and they agree to one person will own the game and run the game for the other people yeah this, this even literally branches over into political activity right because yes. there's, a, there's a degree to which the narrativist movement of the early 21st century uh has this political overtone to it, right? It's got this socialist, um, you know, the GM shall not be the owner of the means of production. Yes, <laughs> I think it's a it, it's a way of it's it's a way of presenting something that a lot of people I think we've already always known. Um, I've always felt that it was a solution in search of a problem. And I'm sure that problem exists in some places, but not anywhere that I've played. Like like many political knee jerk reactions, I feel that it's 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 a hammer in search of nails. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, however, it does point out that you know there's always uh, another spectrum. This is good news. I was just posting about this on StoryGames.com this morning. Uh, there's no way to categorize all games. It, you, it, the GNS model is nice, but you know every model you might use is going to run up against limitations. Because the good news is. We're talking about an infinitely expandable multidimensional space in which games rise and fall based not on what category they belong to, but on their unique blend of qualities that fall on all different scales of measurement. Uh, so the fact that you know you can lump some games into this category and call them traditional and in a bunch of other ones in this category and call them uh, GMless doesn't actually even mean that those are exclusionary categories. Someone will come up with a way to straddle that line. That's what artists do. I, I also think that, that all those labels and those uh, genre tags, they're there for a subjective convenience according to who you want to reach out to. Well, yeah, genres are there for marketers and taxonomies are there for academics. But artists are not obligated to remain within any taxonomical category. As a matter of fact, artists are obligated to smash taxonomical categories. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, where was I going? Um, I'll tell you what, since we're talking about genre and taxonomies, can I ask you the question about the um, 
about the cyberpunk genre and why you're not very interested in it. I am, I am not very interested in most fiction. I'll, I'll tell you that right off the bat. Um, I, most of what I, I read voraciously, but most of what I read is nonfiction. Right. You know, huge amounts of research. And the fiction that I do read um, is either guilty pleasure, bathroom reading kind of books where my standards are a lot lower, but I ultimately don't care. It's chewing bubble gum. Or something that has arisen on the cultural landscape that obligates me to read it uh, because the author is a brilliant virtuoso of their craft uh, or because some sort of cultural milestone is represented here, you know, like classics of postmodern fiction, for instance. Uh, my favorite authors being Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. Okay. So uh, that said, um, you might make a few assumptions and probably be correct in that anything that veers too hard into what I consider genre starts seeming like camp to me, and I can't stomach it for very long. To me, this happened to cyberpunk very quickly. I don't know the order this is going to be released. Probably um, uh, Snow Crashes will come out around the time that this episode will. And Well, Snow Crash is a great thing to mention at this moment because because talk about having your tongue firmly planted in your cheek. You, you said earlier that you considered Snow Crash uh, more of a parody of cyberpunk than cyberpunk. And I would absolutely agree with that, which is what makes it so brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um... It wasn't actually. I, I was influenced by other people reading other other critiques of it, and it's a yes. It's uh, and I think the first time the thing is the first time I read it when it wasn't far off from when it was published. I was uh, a lot younger, and so I was taking it much more at face value and saying, "Oh, this is just this is cool." Sort of, um, you know, I I want my character to be hero protagonist. I want to pre- present these action scenes and uh, these weird technologies. And of course, coming back to it, it's like, oh, I see what's it what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was doing something a little more postmodern than people realized at the moment. But, but even, come on, naming your hero, hero protagonist, uh, if that's that's almost a, a blatant yeah. nod to Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, I must profess that I'm, I'm ignorant of Thomas Pynchon. Um, I've, uh, I think we might have a copy of The Crying of Lot 49 somewhere around here. So Not a bad place to start. The Snow Crash stuff, uh, it's eight years after Neuromancer. So that comment you've got about sort of it became very much of a it, it became mainstream very quickly. I think yeah, a lot of popular culture you know, took the concepts and their and then sort of watered them down so that it was just the you know, the form over the function, the chrome, the um, the virtual reality, and all that sort of stuff. Right, and I could say that a similar phenomenon has occurred with. A, post-apocalyptic fiction. And I might even hazard a proposal that these phenomena are both based on that philosophical phenomenon I was referring to earlier. That is, we find ourselves here now in this end of history kind of age. We find ourselves in an age where, like it or not, we're forced to either accept capitalist realism and find some way to make that work, or uh, it looks like total collapse, because those really seem to be the only two viable options anymore. You know, we're we're past the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, capitalism seems to have 
quote unquote, one on the world stage. And yet now we find ourselves in this weird globalist neoliberal phase, which is trying and I think failing for the last 30 years to figure out what to do next. And because of that, as maybe Slavoj Zizek said, don't remember who, but I think Zizek often gets accredited with the quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah. And this may take us straight back into Fractopia again. Well, because, I mean, uh, you, you just mentioned that. I mean, you, you've got a set of principles that you put down, and one of them is that the world survives, yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, there is post-apocalyptic fiction, which, like cyberpunk, has, has become so mainstream. And I think the reason it's become mainstream is because on some existential philosophical level we uh find ourselves at sort of a, a a dead end we find ourselves without ideas we can imagine everything destroyed and we can imagine a dystopian nightmare but it's harder and harder to imagine even we know that these are probably wrong right we know that when we try to predict the future we're generally wrong as well so on top of all of that we have this anxiety uh, that has no release. And so we seek our release in overblown, nightmarish futures. Um, but we don't want that to be real. We yeah. don't want that to be what actually happens. And my questions, when I began thinking about, you know, okay, 100 years from now, Day Trippers takes place 100 years from now. But Day Trippers is, you know, uh, I don't want to say lighthearted because it can get like I said, existentially terrifying, but Day Trippers is a sort of a, a wacky shoot from the hip kind of game. And as I began thinking more about these questions, convergent technology, uh, end of history, capitalist realism, these are heavy topics and it soon became much heavier than anything I, I wanted to apply to Day Trippers, but I couldn't leave the question alone. And I decided to begin focusing my research on answering these questions, uh, which is way too much for one man to do. <laughs> so I had to pull a team together. And this became um, the first Ubiquicity book. Well, what, why don't you tell us how, um, how your, um, your team interacts then? Because that's, uh, yeah, it, it's... First of all, I'm, I'm, am I right in saying it's, it's a shared world, effectively? Well, I call it a curated world in a very similar way to the, um, like to a game of day trippers where there is a GM. And if you make up something that makes no sense, the GM is going to clip your wings a little bit or modify your suggestion. But still in all, we're counting on everybody on the team to produce interesting details. Yeah. To look, it's a, well, it's a big world, you know, it, it, there's no way that just one character or one story, or even one anthology, could could look at these questions from from every level, from every POV that you would need to look at to seriously answer these questions. You've got a set of baseline assumptions, which you, I think you you cover them comprehensively in uh, the zeroth episode of your podcast. Yeah, and this this may be the the best like straightforward way to define the the subgenre. So I'll go through those. Yeah, please. Uh, there are 10 core assumptions of the Fractopian subgenre. Okay, first, we don't destroy ourselves within 100 years. We may come close, um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, I, I, 
if I wanted to write post-apocalyptic, then I'd be doing that. And if I wanted to write cyberpunk, I'd be doing that. But the whole reason for coming up with a different word is because I didn't want to do either of those things. So we don't destroy ourselves. But corporations do usurp many of the roles once played by governments uh, to the degree where corporations may literally take over the role of government. Capitalism survives, uh, but of course it has to be modified, um, and we'll get into some of those modifications later, um, because I am accepting capitalist realism. This is a term, you can go Google it. It was uh, uh, defined or at least popularized by uh, a philosopher named Mark Fisher, uh, whose book Capitalist Realism is available from Zero Books, and I do recommend that you check it out. Although you can probably find a PDF online. It's short. Um, but it describes the age in which we find ourselves, some of which we've already touched on. Uh, so capitalism survives. Uh, things become more and more privatized as capitalism survives and expands and corporate charters come into play where corporations begin taking over Again, government, uh, uh, what was previously governmental responsibilities and roles. The economy becomes stratified. Uh, we have a diverse, polyglot, multicultural culture. That's horizontally. But vertically, society becomes much more stratified. We break into not just the haves and the have-nots, but more like the haves and the three different levels of that based on conspicuous consumption. And then the have-nots and the three or four or five different levels of that based on one's acceptance of the capitalist regime. And then way down at the bottom, we've got sort of the homeless, the edda, the untouchable classes, the people who are not in the system. Um, and this stratification, of course, changes the way economy works. And we deal with reputation economies. We deal with um, digital economies. We deal with uh, economies that are uh, either physical barter economies all the way up to fully electronic economies and things like your reputation score, which follows you around and affects the transactions that you may have. This ties us into uh, the ubiquitous computing concept again, because again, we're the computer network is now the world and we're tiny compared to it. We move around in it. The internet of things is our current phrase for this, but that phrase will, it's probably already falling out of use. We stop even thinking of these things as computers. Like you don't realize that your phone is a computer. You don't think of it as a computer, but it's more powerful than your desktop computer. Augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, artificial realities of all types, um, both for work and for play, for escapist purposes and for productive capitalist productive purposes. A super dense ad saturated media landscape pervades the urban area. Everything is tied to advertising because branding is now um, not only the um, ubiquitous and dominating uh, force of the consumer society that we live in today, but has taken on a political level as well. And so brands become, even more than they are today, they become almost political identities. And living in a particular region with particular, served by particular corporations or owned by rentier corporations who represent certain blocks, literally are your enemy to those people over there who are the rival corporations. 
But then on the brighter side, we also have the broad use of green technologies, nanoengineering, advances in health uh, and biogenetics uh, that will make most diseases unheard of, public health much better than anything that we can imagine today. Universal basic income will be, and here I have to come back to the real world a little bit because, again, I don't see any other option. If if we live in the world of capitalist realism and the trends that we see in recent history continue and we're to avoid collapse, then something like a universal basic income or universal basic services will have to be instilled. And I think that the United States will probably be the last Western country to go that way, but eventually all Western countries will go that way. So I think I've now hit all 10. Thank you. <laughs> wow. I mean, that, that, that's, that's like a whirlwind tour. That's, that's just, just great. I've listened to the episodes of your podcast, and I must say that some of the things I found the most relatable uh, were the, the eighth episode on food. Um, and that's, that's partly because, um, I'm not so much a, a computers person. I'm, I'm more of a, uh, I'm a chemistry, biochemistry and logistics person, but I'm also interested in food. But generally the, uh, one of the things that, uh, I, I think made that stand out is because it is a, it's a very fundamental texture that you can apply to every story that is, um, instantly accessible to the reader the idea that you're eating something that is uh, you know fresh and is actually was a vegetable or if it's 3d printed uh, protein substrate or something like that then uh, you can imagine what that's like to have every day and i think about half of the writers maybe i'm exaggerating it might be more like a third of the writers but quite frequently um the writers uh in the ubiquity books do manage to work that in because it's because part of what i wanted to get back to the to the genre question a little bit sure as you might have intuited i i prefer to skirt genre labels because uh the fiction that moves me the most is either like you know bizarro and postmodern i.e so non-realistic that i don't have to worry about mapping it onto the real world except as an allegory or is going to try to answer some serious questions for me and the serious questions in this life like food, come much closer to my physical body than whatever techno wizardry is available in the culture outside of me. Um, Sex, love, food, the human condition is really what I want to explore because that's what great literature explores. So although the Fractopian genre takes place in the future and although it does take for granted uh, some technologies which don't yet exist or which today exist in sort of a first-generation stage, it's not hard to extract their, you know, what the next couple generations of these technologies may look like without, without like blatantly and obviously jumping into a genre or into a fictional realm, trying to remain predictive. Here's the example that I like to use. A Fractopian story, Infinite Jest, if it was written a hundred years ago, would have been a Fractopian story because it mentions telephones and televisions and video cassette tapes. Now, it's not really about the telephones or televisions or video cassette tapes, although there is one particular videotape that's, that's a MacGuffin. 
Um, but it's really about the lives of the people and the events and the feelings and what it's like to live in their world, right? It's about the human condition. It just happens to take for granted certain pieces of technology that exist in the world. That's what a Practopian story does. It takes the technology for granted and tells you a story about the people, yeah. how the technology affects them or what their normal day-to-day -day life is given this technology, but rather than making uh, the technology the star of the show, gee, wow, we've invented Stargates, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm more interested in, let's, let's look at what will, oh, I don't know, the family be like? What will falling in love be like? Pairing up one playing a quote-unquote masculine role and one playing a quote-unquote feminine role, will that even happen anymore? Uh, will we all be polyamorous? Will will romance even occur? Because will you'll be able to look at someone on the street and pull up their profile and you'll see all of the data on them floating there in midair. This is going to change the way we relate to each other. And cell phones have already changed the way we relate to each other. Just think. You know, these are the kinds of questions that I want to answer. It's not, let's go kill aliens or let's explore planet X. Yeah. I went through all of the stories again when I was um, preparing for this. And one of the things I did was I looked through each one, not not just for the sort of all the cool flashy tech that turns up and, and the the individual storylines but also the disruptors so it's things like um the, the the key disrupting things which maybe you can gamify you know, with a view to um what a more interesting future role-playing game so i was thinking like uh reputation scores how does that work and as you said that follows you around and how people make money how reputation can be a protection or how it can be uh, a, a double-edged sword or um, multiple identities and whether you could have say burner identities or, or or exist as several different people at once at the same time to different groups absolutely and and oh the um oh this is the one i thought was interesting uh in the uh, rat queen to black king it was the disposable nature of the human body all this talk that sort of well you you can nobody really dies you can be resurrected you'll just end up in a coma it'll hurt less than being shot um and um uh the the casual way that says well i'm, I'm going to go spelunking down a down a an underground um underground railroad yeah if you've got if you've got an insurance package for it it's it's hard to die <laughs> there's a story in the second book too where one character works for a um a, a crematorium um, because the, the author was interested in, in examining the question, what does happen to the dead? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, but but right off the bat, we realized, well, people just dying doesn't happen as often as it used to, especially in the wealthier districts. Yeah. Um, I, I think, actually, that might be a good point to ask a, ask a question and, and come back to some of the things I'm, I wanted to cover, which was about how you collaborate with the authors. So you just mentioned that one of the author wanted to do that. I, I guess, what sort of oversight are you having with the team? And um, where are the ideas generally coming in from? And, and is there a consensus? Is, is it is is it they all come to you as the editor and point of contact? Or, or what happens? Would you share them? 
Uh, okay, well, I it, it began as a one-man project. Um, my original intention was to release a source book that would be a supplement to Day Trippers. It would be the world of Day Trippers. Right. Uh, that source book is still in the works, although it is no longer going to be a supplement for Day Trippers. It's going to be a system agnostic. In fact, uh, 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 boy, what, what do you call trad and narrativist? And what are the? Those aren't genres. What are they? Uh, well, I would say that they they are they're certainly taxonomies or categories or something. That's maybe okay. Well, what I'm trying to get at is that the source book will be not only agnostic in terms to system, but also agnostic in terms to playstyle and approach. Yeah, that that works. Okay, uh, maybe we can call them playstyles. Uh, playstyles works, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, so that so that project began expanding, but at first it was still a one man project. Um, for it 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 lived like that for about six months. Um, my research just got larger and larger and larger, and I found more and more questions that I either uh, didn't have the expertise to answer myself uh, or wanted, you know, when we're talking about questions this large, I, you almost don't want to be responsible for every point of view because you know you're going to miss things. You really do need a multivalent approach. You really do need more hands on deck, more eyes on the issue. And I started reaching out via Facebook and a network of other people I knew who were writers to see if I could drum up some interest. So I got a team of nine or 10 people together and we started an email list. And that is our, our core base of operations now. That's the email list. At some point, that email list may turn into a forum. I'm playing with the idea. I'm not sure how to structure it yet. I'm wondering if there's some way to monetize it. Hello, capitalist realism. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it may be that, you know, uh, subscribing members get access to the, uh, I'm not even sure what it is, the charter members material or section or something like that. Uh, but also what I'm trying to do with, um, Practopian fiction is, you know, it's, I'm, if other people started writing it, if it got out of my control, if it went, if I see people using the word Practopian to describe the fiction that they're writing and it had nothing to do with me at all, that I will consider a success because the, the point of this really is to answer some big and serious questions that I don't see fiction addressing, despite the fact that people as notable as Yuval Harari are walking around right now, literally taking the podium to say, science fiction has never been more important than it is right now. Mm -hmm. Yes, we usually predict the future wrong, but we have never needed um, a broad and diverse prognostication more than we need it now. Serious look at what we may be heading into and what we should avoid, even. You know, I mean, cyberpunk, I guess, is is the the sort of overblown on steroids warning sign saying this is what you should avoid. And it's clear that it it descends from trends that we see today: privatization, neoliberalism, corporate ownership uh, of uh, personal data, online transactions, um, things like Facebook knowing more about you than you know about yourself. I mean, all of these trends are certainly going to continue. And they're all bad, but they're already here. However, we also have things like um, the World Health Organization reporting, you know, less starvation, less 
baseline poverty globally speaking than ever before that even the weak the weakest and poorest people in the world are slowly rising due to global capitalism it's you know it, you can't you can't just paint capitalism all bad it has in fact succeeded in raising the standard of living in every place that it touches um but what it also does is it stratifies the culture it breaks up it consumes the culture and it turns every culture into another commodity and here we get sort of you know neo-marxist perhaps little guy debord starts to enter the picture we uh now exist in that ad saturated artificial corporate owned media landscape in which even our interactions with each other are some sort of digitized transaction on some other level yeah um that's a fractopian world and we're in a sense already living there um the site that i built that may eventually house this forum is called thisisfractopia.com right fractopia.com was taken it was taken by i think it's a tattoo parlor <laughs> Um, but I was, I was okay with taking this is fractopia.com. And that's also the name of the podcast because it, because I mean it both ways. I, I'm saying, I'm pointing at the genre. I'm saying that's what the genre is, but I'm also looking at today. I'm saying, look, look around fractopia is where we already live. It's just with more tech. It's a stratified culture in which capitalism is the reality, like it or not, and our social interactions are mediated by object value, use value, and symbolic brand value, as much as anything else. Talking about sort of extrapolating the future and and, um, and looking at real-world future trends, are you aware of uh, Tim Harford, The Economist? He's been on the podcast um, a couple of times talking about uh, Lloyd Alexander and uh, uh, Jack Vance, but um, but he's you know he, he's uh, writes writes for the FT and and also uh, is an economist and writes uh, popular economics. Uh, but yeah. one of the things he yeah. did, which is really interesting, is the um, fifty things that made the modern economy. And I think he might have done another fifty things by now. But it, it looks at things like you know, the the impact of shipping containers uh, and um, and light bulbs and and the cost of the cost of illuminating things and how it is it has massively decreased over in a in a few hundred years. Mm. And of course, that's that's kind of that's looking back rather than looking forwards. But I think that economic analysis is powerful uh, as far as I'm concerned in, in terms of you know thinking about going forward and, and the actual as you say the effect on people's lives and and well-being it is and see and so uh if we manage to uh avoid utter catastrophe um uh, which i don't see much point in writing about right what i what i want to write about is is let's go down a path where we maybe narrowly skirt utter catastrophe and accept take for granted most of most of the culture that we live in because we haven't come up with any competing ideas let's face it we've We've even had massive socialist experiments, and we still haven't come up with any other ideas. Capitalism does, in fact, seem to be here to stay for, I think, at least 100 years, given that we don't all die. <laughs> so let's be realistic about it, and let's, let's look at the trends that, are, that we see around us. And it's not all dark. There are, in fact, many things corporations do better than governments. Yeah, I mean that, that was uh, the the really that, that was one of the things I really picked up on um, 
for the um, the baseline of, of of the fractopian future, the idea that corporates corporations will supplant um, governments or become you know govern their own tribes or or for out of uh, social responsibility um, govern portions of the populace. Yeah, the universal basic income is offset by, to a large extent, uh, ubiquitous advertising and, and uh, corporate subsidization forms this sort of circular uh, uh, you know, pattern in which the corporation rents space to you and gives you enough money to consume their products and so that cycle continues. Now, thinking about uh, advertising and, and branding and everything, I was reminded a friend of mine years ago wrote the um, he wrote a character sheet for the Brett Easton Ellis role playing game. It was all about um, you know what what medications you're on and um, and who your psychiatrist is and your debts, your mother's debts, your father's debts. Looking at all the levers that identified from the the first uh, the first anthology and also a few other pieces of uh, fiction, I'm wondering about a character sheet that's just about fragmented identities and and your um, your credit rating and the uh, your your preferred advertising streams and that sort of thing. I have a uh, I have a Patreon. I have like six Patreons so, because I I think you know you might want to invest in this project but have no interest in that project and it's sort of they bifurcated and then bifurcated so yeah <laughs> there is one for day trippers and there's one for ubiquity and the, little by little to my uh patrons over there on the ubiquity patreon i'm releasing pieces of the source book as it gels but i i must admit that the player character sheets again i'm trying to be system agnostic but it's clear that you're there's going to be some record keeping Right, you just mentioned a couple of the the reasons why. Um, that record keeping also comes down to individualizing your base of operations, your home, your office, or whatever, because the the menu of possibly you know miraculous uh, assistant technologies that you might have at your fingertips is truly vast. So everybody will be able to personalize their living space or their personal accoutrement in all sorts of cool ways. You'll need to be able to keep track of that. You know, what is your house like? What kind of personal gear you carry on you? How is this rig to that connected to this who reports to that? And where does your artificial agent fit in? And do you have more than one agent? Do you have more than one persona? You're going to have to keep track of that too. So you're you're, you're effectively, you're going to have a a cognitive map or a mind map with with the character at the center and then connecting a lot of um, a lot of things. It's actually turning. It, it's so it keeps changing because there's so much to keep track of. So it's like I said, it's probably going to be one of the last pieces of of the book to take its final form because it keeps changing. But right now, there's three pages. I mean, the, yeah, <laughs> that is an interesting design problem. I'm I'm uh, with my work hat on. One of one of the most interesting things I do at work, and I don't get to do it very often, is things like knowledge management and uh, you know getting information out of other people. And then presenting it in a way that's concise and accessible, so it's a it's actually useful for has a has a pedagogical uh, value in the future, as opposed to just being a whole load of notes that people will file, file and never look at again. Yeah, and unlike the previous generation's definition of information architecture, this is also visual. Right, there's a user interface aspect to it, and you have to think about sort of how you're presenting it. And uh, the interesting thing, years ago when I looked at uh, you know mind maps and C maps, so you you have Tony Buzan for mind maps and um, 
Novak for CMAPs. And it was interesting comparing how easy they are to use when you're writing stuff down versus come back to and actually get the contextual information afterwards. Oh. The mind maps score well on the first one and uh-huh. the C-maps score well on the second one. Uh, and and I've used C-maps extensively for some quite... Comp- well, it was basically people at the end of their career stuff. Um, and I was given the task of, well, we, we've got to do something to try and extract the value of this person before they retire and then we lose all that... Um, intellectual capital uh, and and so we sit them and sat them in the room and I said okay I'm going to try and map out everything you know and I just want you to talk and then I just interviewed them and, and just listened to them and then drew the map mm-hmm. and people will because of this whole thing about tacit knowledge versus explicit knowledge people always know more than they can write down oh it's it, even they know they know more than they can actually tell you you have to keep coming back to them I mean my my day my day gig for the past about 20 years is uh, web development. And uh, for instance, I've been working on this one website for uh, probably nine months now. And granted, the client is very busy and it's it's hard to get a meeting with them. So like once a month, we get a meeting. But every meeting, I discover core things about the system that I should have known from the beginning. But they were so obvious to him that he never explained them. That, that is exactly the, 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 the issue. I mean, the, the way I'm tackling it... Um, is I designed a way of, uh, you, you basically, you have a two axis. You, you look at every piece of information, every node, and then you say, for that node, is it easy or hard to explain? And is it subjective or objective? So if it's if it's easy and objective, it's probably a fact that can just be written down. If it's hard and subjective, you actually need a lot of face time with the person to actually train somebody and pass the knowledge on. Mm-hmm. What it comes down to is actually train. Now, I'm trying to build a model of his business, right? As as literal as I can. I'm trying to make the system model the existing functionality. I'm, I'm trying to speak in abstract terms because we're also talking about character sheets at this moment. Indeed, yeah. In both cases, I'm trying to make a system that 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 visually and ontologically represents the uh, an, an already existing dynamic, and I need to extract from you all the pertinent details of that dynamic. But it turns out that in order to do that, I, I have to feed back to you why my system needs to to look at it this way yeah like because you're not even going to ask yourself the question until i go okay okay back up how did you know that was a back wheel not a front wheel yeah oh okay back up right i have to explain to you why the system needs to know what is the difference between that personality and this personality and by the way i've also done a lot of game documentation and design where i was not the programmer but instead the the conceptual artist and the documentation so the approach that i take to this problem um, is basically right uh, an object specification and when you map those out it's sort of a mixture of uh, I don't want to say a mind map but or not, it's not a flow chart and it's not a mind map but it's kind of both of those things yes it is a, it is a networked distribution and then within each node there is a hierarchical structure that looks like a rectangle divided into two parts. The upper part is properties and the bottom part is functions. I can visualize that. So that is a that is a mixture of the mind map and then a bunch of little hierarchical objects. Yeah. Oh, where are we? 
So we were talking about character sheets, and this is how UI design came into the question. Yes, indeed, yes. Uh, and of course, I'm trying to be again system agnostic. So I'm I'm more concerned with uh, tracking the the fictional details than any sort of mathematical or tag based taxonomies. And yet, I I know you're going to have another piece of paper there too. I, I to track that mathematical stuff. Mm. So. I need to keep it as concise as possible. It is a very interesting question. Yeah. And I think tags will end up being the way to go, but it has to be an open-ended tag set. You know, I, th- I think that's a very interesting thing. Uh, I mean, you've got a system agnostic book, but you need you need to almost have a, this is how you must write your character down, all, all the ways, the strategies you can use it to communicate it, because... You need some way of focusing on the important stuff. But you also need some limitations because otherwise, you know, you give your character, your player, you give your player a blank piece of paper and just say, go. They're just going to stare at you like a deer caught in the headlights. You do, you do need limitation. It's like writing a haiku. For some, somehow the limitation provides you with the ability to solve the problem. Yeah, it's a spec document. It's both suggestive and, um, proscriptive yeah yeah i mean it's some of the um, the things that i admire most in in a lot of role-playing games are the ones that have the uh the the prompting questions i was thinking about this the other day maybe maybe you can answer for me because i feel like uh vincent baker's apocalypse world was the first place where you're given lists of things to choose from and there's no die roll but you're only allowed to choose two or something like that I don't know if it was the first, but it's quite likely. I think it's the first time I ever saw it. Because that, I think, is, is one of one of his. He has several, but one of his great contributions uh, to to role playing game design is this whole idea of rather than giving you a table to roll on or f- forcing you to make it up out of thin air, to give you a list of suggestions, and then they either prompt you to come up with something, or you must choose. X number of them. Yes, and and of course the, the 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 really clever thing about that is you're forced to exclude some. Exactly, it's both suggestive and prescriptive. And when it comes to a system agnostic sucker like this ubiquity source book, I I think I have no other choice really. I think that's that's the way the design has to go. Because again, there's so many there's so many possible ways. There's so just 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 thinking about what you might have in your living room would entail so many questions we could spend all night. So, you know, you know what? We're going to give you a list and 25 bucks, go for it. <laughs> that that reminds me of something, though. I, um, a really great piece of, uh, you know, restricted scope character generation. I believe, although I'm not sure, I think it was the Jovian Chronicles, um, where the, the idea... I think it's this role-playing game. The idea is that your character lives in a space dwelling of some sort with a set number of cubic meters of space, and you can fill it with whatever you want. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's one way to manage the, the equipment list, is to say that you know, it's, it's based on volume, not mass, which is uh, which was quite marvelous, I thought. But the, the idea that then you also... You both have the functional equipment stuff, but you also have the the descriptive stuff of this is the character's life and this is how they choose to live in in their cubicle 
uh, on, on the space station or wherever it was. I think it was that. Yeah, and it takes on an aspect of resource management where space is one of your resources that you have to manage. I like that. Absolutely. Or you could do it in a more gradiated way. Like uh, we were talking via email about uh, cyberspace, which I wrote for Iron Crown back in Yes, 80, yes, we were. 89. Um, and in that game, I did... Uh, a large amount of research and brainstorming on I broke the body down into all of its component systems like the you know the, the olfactory system the gustatory system the nervous system etc cetera, etc cetera. and then thought of all the ways that those could be augmented modulated sped up slowed down stopped you know and and each one of these became a, a it's a cybernetic system and then much like the creation of your, your bedroom or your living room in, in Ubiquitous City, in, cyber, in, in cyberspace, uh, if you were playing an augmented person, that is, you would have to put together your own cyber setup by picking and choosing and then wiring different things together. So you could, you could wire your eyes to your brain, but not your hand. Hmm. You could, you know, so the hand was like a, more like a tool than an, than an augmentation. Uh, or you could wire the hand to the brain and now the hand could work at super speed and you'd be cognizant of what it was doing at the same time. And the way that you wired these things up, and of course you've got limited space because you've only got so much space in your body. So there was a there was a resource management, but also sort of an engineering aspect to how you would build yourself. Oh, wow. Oh, and then there was another limit, which was in that game, because at, at, I don't know, I don't know. There was a tendency, at least at the time, to have to assign a... I think game balance was the reason because most cyberpunk games that came out in the nineties did this to some degree. There's always a cost or there's, there's a chance that you're going to go ape shit. And that chance increases the more cybernet, the more cyberneticized you are, that chance goes up. And in the cyberspace game, we called it the curse, which was cybernetic implant rejection syndrome. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a number of cyberpunk sources. I'm, I'm, I don't own cyberspace, and I, I was trying to pick up a copy of that just to read that section. That's great. Well, I've read, um, I played some great Cyberpunk 2020, but I've never been into the system, uh, and I've never been particularly inspired by it. I mean, it's it's perfectly functional, and we had a great time because, you know, you're with your mates and you're playing games. Well, obviously, Iron Crown was not the first ones on that boat. They were following the, what they th they thought would be a trend. And I guess it was a little bit of a trend because a number of publishers came out. We were the second one out of the gate. I think our Talsorian was the first one out. Talsorian was the first Cyberpunk was 1988 and then Cyberspace was 1989 and then Cyberpunk 2020 was, was 1990 because I think it's yeah. like by... Yeah. Uh, it was advanced 30 years and, and it's supposed to be 2013 for the first cyberpunk. And then um, GURP cyberpunk in uh, 1990 as well. I knew you would know this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I, 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 I like the GURPS one. Well, I, I know it because I actually checked the dates and just to say I was getting the right order. But I, I, um, I like the, uh, the GURPS one because uh, it's got such a terrific bibliography in the back. I am very proud of cyberspace and all the work that I did for Iron Crown. But looking back at that whole oeuvre, um, it's crunchy as all hell, man. I don't want to run a game with that much crunch anymore. I used to, when I was younger, I loved the crunch, but now I'm like, you know what? Mathematically, I, I, I want the math to be simple. And it turns out that the simpler the math, this is the way I went with day trippers, for instance, the simpler the math is, 
the more creative flexibility you have in interpreting it. And it turns out today anyway, that I value that flexibility over the certainty that all those tables and charts used to give me. I'm, I'm on the same lines there. Um, I also think that going back to the comment about the, the character sheet and, the, and this sort of mind mapping and, and that, um, I think one of the top priorities has to be a holistic view of your entire character. And, and it's so much harder to do that when, when it's a list, particularly because lists are innately hierarchical. So you'll prioritize the things at the top of the list versus, versus the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you've got to disrupt that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when uh, you talk about Apocalypse World, the number one thing I think Apocalypse World did extremely well is um, make it incredibly accessible for players. You've got your, your playbook, put it in front of them, and you know they, they have a good idea about who they're playing and what levers they have uh, they can access. And I think that's... Uh, that is the one thing of, of indie design that has, uh, when it's done right, uh, it, it adds tremendous value to the game. Not just for getting people off the ground quickly, but also, also I think, as I say, getting a holistic view of your character and a sense of self. Yeah, that works. That works really, really well. And again, maybe you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the original Splat books were White Wolf. Like the, the first people who came up with the idea of a splat book dedicated to a character class, I that that could well be could well be right. Um, certainly, that's so they they were say started in the nineteen nineties, and I can't think of anything like that before then. But that absolutely that's a, that's a cool technique too. It, it yeah, and it, it's um, I mean it's certainly it's a smart commercial move. As well, if you want to make money and you want to write lots of splat books, uh, White Wolf were undoubtedly successful at doing that. But the the core principle that you focus on the things that you're really interested in, that's um, and and it's all available in front of you, and it's player facing. That I think is is essential. And so when you've got a whole load of mechanics that aren't immediately accessible or player facing, it adds cognitive load to the players and some people you know if, if they're well into their um, their role master or whatever they'll that that's not a high cost because they because they know what they're doing but i i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to pay that cost personally i think that there's and this is good news and it sort of touches on the some of the earlier topics that we that we talked about you know there's there's no bold clear line dividing narrativist from trad or anything like that they're both you know it's like opposite sides of the same toolbox but you can draw from the middle or draw tools from both sides and that sort of thing yeah i i i think we know that now um and and i think a, a lot of the the conflict has been um artificially political uh and and um most people are quite sane and they mix and match and they appreciate the range of choices as well and they will enjoy playing a range of games. I think that that range, you know, there's a there's a comfort zone. Everybody has their own comfort zone, and it's going to span. It's somewhere in that larger spectrum, you know, with like, uh, you know, um, Iron Crown games at one end, really really crunchy stuff, and and then like, uh, you know, Dread or Doctor Magnet Hands at at the other end. Yeah. Um. And everybody's going to have their own comfort zone somewhere in there. The difference, and and 
the whole purpose of the the conversation at storygames.com that I was alluding to earlier is about coming up with a taxonomy, something like the GNS system from Ron Edwards or some way to organize all these into categories. And as an anarchist, I'm saying, look, categories aren't real. And that's actually good news because these things differ in different qualia along different dimensions that aren't even necessarily mappable to each other. What's important is that you find the zone that that you feel comfortable with. Some people feel that it's an affront to their creativity to give up too much narrative control to another person or even to the dice or the rules. Um, and those people are probably highly creative, maybe uh, uh, extroverted uh, individuals. But then there's others who wish to be creative, but need more of a hand or want the system to be responsible to sort of take them off the hook. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And there's, and you fall somewhere on that spectrum, find a game that addresses that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know what? I thought of the Monty Cook game that I was blanking on earlier. I was thinking of The Strange. Oh, no, The Strange is, um, yeah, that, that is, uh, isn't that a Numenera offshoot? It's a, it's a, a cipher system. Yeah. Yeah. So The Strange is kind of like if you, if you decided to approach a, a sort of a day trippers like reality, but through a hierarchical organization that was top secret. Yeah. Um, so I, I sometimes say that the Day Trippers is the anarchist version of The Strange. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a good pitch. That's really good. I uh, One of the things that struck me about Day Trippers, by the way, because I've read it recently, was that uh, it the, the layout reminded me a lot of Traveller, which is, is kind of, uh, it's kind of like this, this obviously it's so, it's so not Traveller, it's um, as you say has that has these this sort of um, uh, it defies it defies the three dimensions and the scientific logic and it just it will plant people in the worlds that you want to explore but it feels very much uh, like uh, the, the way it's set out it looks like a, a traditional game and so it's kind of amusing to read it like that as well. Uh, well, I I wasn't trying typographically to to imitate Traveler, although I was keeping it simple and and more than anything, I was emulating the design of those Iron Crown games from the '90s. Right. Yeah. A side comment. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed um, Golden Age Adventures. I thought that was a really great idea, and I do like the uh, I like the layout of those and the and the designs in there. I would love to do another one of those. That was that was fun. Yeah, it turns out it's it's too fat. It's too big. I don't think I would release sixteen stories plus modules all in one book because the sucker is like three hundred pages or something. It's really huge. I don't I don't consume uh, consume role playing games that size anymore, really. Um, but the but the thing is that you can dip in and out of day trippers and sorry out of golden age adventures. And um, yeah. so listen, so listeners, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, Todd, why don't you, you explain the sort of the, the, the classic SF and, and what you've done for each, each story? Okay. Um, the, uh, the, I think of Day Trippers in a way as kind of like um, a love letter to the head fucking 
inner space exploration, new wave science fiction of the seventies. That was really my favorite sci-fi. Um, I was, I was always more interested in social sci-fi than hard sci-fi. And I was especially interested in the, the trippiest and, you know, weirdest, like reality bending stuff. Uh, and, and day trippers, you know, is, is inspired by that and wants to go there. But while I was working on it, I also thought, you know, there's something about the golden age science fiction that's written from the 30s to the late 40s, early 50s, because of its sort of like pre-space age, pre-NASA, it had this this sort of innocence and naivete, which like an anything can happen kind of a mentality, a Stanley G. Weinbaum kind of mentality that in a way uh, brought a similar, distinctly different, but but similar surreal quality into the world of science fiction. And so I decided to pay homage to those golden age stories, which uh, A, I thought might work within the day trippers milieu and B, were uh, publicly available, public domain. So I put together this book, Golden Age Adventures, which has 16 stories in it. They're all stories by classic authors of the golden age of science fiction from the thirties to fifties. They are all available in the public domain. And so I was able to include the full text of each story in the book right alongside the adventure that I based on it. And then the approach that I took toward these adventures, because I don't want to, uh, I'm trying to be system agnostic. You could actually use golden age adventures with, with other systems besides day trippers. What I did was I just codified all of the characters, the monsters, the locations, uh, the events that occur, uh, sort of as uh, individual objects. We were talking object orientation before, right? So I broke each story down into its component objects, and I map out all these objects using the day trooper scale, which is very simple. It's everything is one to six, and you can translate it into any other system that you want. I actually include conversion tables at the back of the book. So these stories could be run you know, as part of a traveler campaign or just to throw a little spice into your uh, whatever science fiction campaign you may run. Terrific. I mean, it's such a great idea. Uh, and I don't think I've seen, I don't think there's another project like it. We have been talking for about, uh, about an hour and a quarter. Um, so I, I've got a couple of other things I wanted to, to talk about. Sure. I think the main thing I want to cover now, because we we talked about role playing games, I'm glad we talked about cyberspace. What I'd like to talk about is is the future um, and the well now and the future. So so right now, where can we go if we want to purchase Ubiquicity? You you have a Patreon, correct, or several Patreons? Uh, I do. You can well the the home base would be uh, Patreon.com/slash/asif. So. Uh... Because my, my company name is As If Productions. Okay. So there is that. And then from there, you can get to the other ones. There's a Patreon for Day Trippers. There's a Patreon for Ubiquicity. Um, these also have their own websites. So there's daytrippersrpg.com. There is ubiquicity.com. Uh, then there is the aforementioned thisisfractopia.com. Yeah. And as far as the future, um, I am... I'm I'm going a little slower now. Having got the first two books out the gate, I feel I can relax a little bit and be a bit more um, invitational. It was the first two books were an open call. 
like an open casting. And I got a bunch of authors submitting stuff and I sort of pulled together those I thought would work, but I didn't enjoy the process of uh, telling people no. I didn't, I don't like that. I don't like rejecting people. It doesn't mean that your story was bad or it just doesn't fit what's going on. Or we already had one that was kind of like it or what. And I, I don't, I don't like doing that to people. So I'm taking it slower this time and I'm approaching people individually and inviting them to participate in the third book. Uh, and that project is just beginning. I expect the third book will probably come out around the middle of next year. Uh, and I'm also working on a top secret system that doesn't have a name yet, but I would like to mention it just in case your, your listeners, um, I feel that your listeners may, in fact, have some interest, and I don't know when this will be coming out. So feel free to hit me up and, and ask me about the online text-based literary role-playing game, story gaming system <laughs> that I'm building. Its working title right now is Story Game Space. Right, okay. And what it is is uh, a it is a forum. It is an augmented forum specially designed for text-based online role play so so it's like a it's like a, a play by post activity and it's it's designed for that is that correct is that fair it is a destination a hub a center a support system a suite of tools for for yes online play by post role that's marvelous now i am i plan on that being out by the end of the year we're entering alpha testing right now i've got some people banging on it but i'm sure it's going to take me a few months to complete the user interface design and work out all the bugs in the system. Sometime before the end of the year, though, I'll be launching it with a real name. <laughs> all right. I look forward to that. Um, what was I going to say? Yes. Uh, Ubiquity, the anthologies. I think I got my copy from Smashwords. Can you get it on Amazon as well? Is that right? It, yeah. Ubiquity is available. Uh, one and two, they're available on Amazon. So if you just type in Ubiquity, that's all you'll find is book one and book two. Cool. Uh, also available at uh, Drive Through Fiction and Smashwords, as you mentioned. Day Trippers is also available on Amazon, as well as uh, Drive Through RPG. Groovy. Um, as I said, I'm going to link all of those on the um, on the show notes. I wanted to ask you about the podcast because, of course, if you know, assuming the people whoever listens to this is a consumer of podcasts, they'll probably be interested in um, your uh, This Is Fractopia podcast. Oh, you, you can find you can find that on YouTube or on Anchor or on any of your popular podcast services because, you know, Anchor distributes out to all of those. So, <clears throat> so, you know, iTunes and SoundCloud and all of those. Although I will say at this moment in time, again, I don't know when this will be aired, but at this moment in time, um, Fractopia is in the shop for retooling. I want to I want to punch the show up a little bit. I I like I like what I've done so far, um, but it's a bit long and and as some people have told me a bit dry. I would like to have a little more interaction, a little more maybe some guest stars, and so I'm reworking that right now. I think there's eight episodes available. Yeah. And you can, eight, eight plus and, episode zero, I think. And you can find them on YouTube or at thisisfractopia.com. And I welcome people, by the way, if this is something that, that uh, is of interest to you, this we've been talking about Fractopia and all the 10 defining points and near future fiction in general and, and all of this, whether as a, as, as, a, as a player, as a GM, or as a writer of 
fiction, perhaps your listeners out there, perhaps your writers of short fiction, um, this is something you would want to get involved in, then please hit me up. This is a huge, huge, uh, gnarled mass of issues that needs many writers, many hands on deck, many eyes exploring it. And of course, it's how many books can we get out of that? It's open-ended. So hit me up. I'm always interested in talking to more writers, game designers, people, especially in this particular area, this near future, quasi-realistic worldview. So thank you so much for being on the, on the podcast. Thank you for having me again, Ralph. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, it'd be great if you could like, share, review, subscribe, or just comment. Music for the podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrissabriskie.com. Check the show notes. Bye.